Computer, initialize Hollow Suite. Three, two, one. On this amazing episode of StarPod Log, we consider the contents of StarLog Magazine from 1979 in issues 25 and 26. Brent and Whitney discuss pinball machines of the 1970s. John Schober considers the works of Ray Bradbury. Shane Poole gives us insight on Jerry Anderson's space report. Michael and Andrea Havens discuss space and Star Wars toys. Plus, Ridley Scott's Alien, science fiction news, and more on this episode of Starpod Log. Greetings and felicitations. Hip, hip, hurrah, tally-ho. Hey, cutie pie. Hey, Puddin. I'm Nayar. And I'm Kavora. We grew up in the 70s and 80s and love classic science fiction and fantasy. On each episode of our show, we consider the contents in two issues of Starlog magazine and discuss what fandom was like years ago. But we leave the Star Trek-related content to our other podcast, StarPod Trek. If you are listening to us on a podcast app, please subscribe to our YouTube channel, which includes bonus content and media reviews. Feel free to join our Facebook group, too. Starlog Magazine, issue number 25, cover date August 1979. Log Entries, latest news from the worlds of science fiction and fact. Buck bought, Galactica lives. When news reached Universal Studios that ABC TV had abruptly canceled Battlestar Galactica, Glenn Larson and others at the helm of the popular TV show were already at work conscripting writers for next season. Isaac Asimov is reportedly among the science fiction luminaries who were being sought by Larson for second season scripting chores. When the execution order came down, the final episode was being edited while the last of Galactica FX were being were being shot at Universal's Heartland facility. So imagine that. They were already planning for another season of Battlestar Galactica, possibly with Isaac Asimov writing. Yeah, another another uh, what-could-have-been scenario that could have been so good. It would have been amazing. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Article continues on uh, talking about Gil Gerard had to chime in saying that making a full-length movie is difficult because that's another scenario that they're thinking about is if the show is canceled, they could make another two-hour production. So you have another Glenn Larson production, Buck Rogers, the star of it, chiming in on how he felt about working on the Buck Rogers motion picture and relating, saying, you know, if Bowser Galactica were to do something large... Like they did initially. Do you remember the first Battlestar Galactica two-parter? They Which released they it in released the movie in theaters. theaters. Yes. Only in select theaters, yeah. Uh, Gil is saying if he had, were to do what they're thinking about doing for Battlestar Galactica and go back and do a full-length motion picture, it would be difficult to do. Well, because of the uh, the, the way it, the way you shoot a movie is different from the way you shoot a TV series is what he was saying. Yes. But but the thing, it's usually a more relaxed set on a, on a movie set. Mm-hmm. 
but but yeah, it it would have been different. But you know, I I still wish they could have done it. You know, and it, the thing is, it would have been a, it would have they would have needed a bigger budget for it, which was the problem with the TV series. They they went over budget. They always needed more money than they had to make it. That was the problem. Glenn Larson said that on Galactica, he was shooting seven days a week at times, so it was draining to him. But it was Bowser Galactica. The problem was the finances because it was visually stunning. It was the most advanced visual show of the time. It it was in science fiction. You know, of course they they know it's always expensive. Yeah. Yeah. So that's interesting that they were tossing around the idea of either a major motion picture post Galactica or a made for TV movie, and we know what happened. Yeah, it got canceled. They reused some some of the sets for Buck Rogers. Space Opera highlights new Saturday morning. In recent years, various government and private pressure groups have decided that Saturday morning television is the logical guardian of the health, education, and welfare of the nation's youth. In response, all three national networks are claiming that the fall of 79 lineup will be socially relevant, consumer conscious, nutritionally informative, educationally sound, and violence free. Some of the new shows luckily promise entertainment as an added bonus. <laughs> well, we remember watching the Super Friends growing up, and you never saw Superman punch anyone. He would punch a rock. Everything was soft. Well, I, I never really noticed it when I was watching I never them. noticed it as a kid either. At, once it was brought to my attention, I said, wow, that's curious. We did see Wonder Woman lasso people, though. We did see that, yeah. So S&M was all right. That's not what it was. <laughs> uh, Flash Gordon is projected to be on Saturday mornings. Tarzan and the Super 7. I watched all those shows, yeah. So, so, But what they're saying is the government thought that that these shows should um, should teach kids morals and, and the nutritional value. I think that they meant commercials, right? The commercials for cereal and everything that were on there. Is that what you think it is? Yeah, you know. thought what, it was in the what's, shows? What strange verbiage that is. Nutritional value? All yeah. they did was have commercials for sugar cereals on Saturday mornings. Well, yeah, but they still said it was fortified with eight vitamins and minerals. <laughs> <laughs> All right, other shows that were in works, Spider-Woman series. We know it took some time, but it did come out. Uh, the Thing, Godzilla meets the Shmoo. How about the Plastic Man comedy adventure show? These are all things that were being planned. Yeah, they were all things I used to watch. And, and Jason of Star Command. Oh, yeah. Yeah, one that was not a cartoon. It was mm-hmm. live action for kids. You're a big Jason of Star Command fan. I was, yes. And so these these are all good shows, and they were um, so, so they were targeted at kids and supposed to be educational in some way i remember when the super friends would do like some kind of a fact thing kind of like the precursor to the gi joe knowing is half the battle yeah but i remember like something you know it was an aside from the episode like wonder woman telling telling kids how to approach a a dog that you don't know yeah yeah (laughs) star wars meets the wireless through a precedent-setting contract the British Broadcasting Corporation and the U.S. National Public Radio will co-produce a radio series continuing the adventures of the intrepid Luke Skywalker of Star Wars. Produced in cooperation with Lucasfilms LTD, the series will utilize licensing story material from the original Star Wars movie, plus the contents of Splinter of the Mind's Eye, 
the Alan Dean Foster novel based on an original Lucas story. The first series will include 13 half-hour episodes and is due to air next January. Okay, so that was a radio series on BBC. That's one of the things, if I knew about this at that time, I would have gone nuts over it. Because I was looking for more and more Star Wars stuff. That's crazy that the BBC had it and it wasn't readily publicized in the United States. If they even made it, this is an idea that that we don't really, you know, we don't really know if it, if it really came through. We read a I've lot never, of this stuff I've and never, don't know if exactly, it happened. Exactly. I've never heard this before. Yeah, maybe maybe something happened, but but that would have been neat because you would think though if they made it that it would be made available now. Doctor Who takes LA by storm. Even with Christopher Lee and Gil Gerard packing in many of the 4,000 attendees, the surprise hit of the Los Angeles Science Fiction, Horror, and Fantasy Convention was Doctor Who. The con held this spring at L.A.'s Marriott Hotel boasted three film rooms. One of them designated the Doctor Who Theater in which a video projector continuously played full-length multi-part adventures without commercials from the British science fiction series and filled the room to the walls. The Doctor's drawing power with L.A. fans is particularly notable in light of the fact that the syndicated series is seen ten times per week in L.A. in the early evening hours and the 98 episodes now in syndication are being seen for the third time over KBSC-TV. We know Doctor Who is just taken America by storm by this time. America was introduced to Doctor Who fairly recently. And it was a huge hit, as as they're saying. And and that would have been neat to see it, like to be able to marathon it, because because you couldn't yes. do that back then at home. So they were showing it at at a con where you could just watch all the episodes continuously. And, and yeah, that must have been a great treat for the fans. Totally. And the go, article goes on to say that in New York, because the Mets were playing in the World Series, that WOR-TV had to preempt the program for Mets baseball games. Now, that's that was my PBS station that I grew up watching, WOR-TV. And I don't ever remember them playing any sports on public broadcasting. So that is so weird. Yeah, yeah, that seems very strange. But it does show that, I mean, it, that that's one thing that hasn't changed. Sports is still popular, and it, they'll still preempt everything for sports. That's right. Well, that being said, are you a sports fan at all? No, I'm not. But you stayed up late the other night for one reason. Why is that? Uh, to see if the Braves won the World Series. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't believe it. I said, is this the girl that I married? <laughs> I mean, I used to follow the Braves a long time ago, and and so now for them to um yeah to have been in the to be in the World Series after after so many years of of you know not really you know not even placing anywhere in the National League. So yeah, I just thought it was great that they won. I was so happy for you being Georgia raised. Congratulations. Yes. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> So hey everybody, I'm Brent. And I am Whitney of the Broken Token Classic Gaming Podcast. And we're going to talk about this article, Fantasy Under Glass. I mean, you guys are experts in the world of pinball. And so, so, <laughs> That's being kind. That's being yeah, very kind. You're being awful nice. Yeah. So yes. Yeah. And, and I guess maybe to tie into that, a quick history of us. We are from, as Whitney mentioned, the Broken Token Podcast. And as of this recording, we're about... 
a little over 100 shows in and eight or so years into covering pinball, classic arcade, uh, classic console gaming. So we do have a little history yeah. under our belts. Yeah, but we're, we're a multi-format show. We we cover all aspects of gaming, and uh, it, it's what we love. So. Were you pinball fans as kids? Uh, no. I As a child of the 80s, I was solid into the video arcades. So I was definitely of, oh, my gosh, they have a Pac-Man. Literally, I remember when Pac-Man hit. Pac-Man, uh, the Atari totally, Vectors, yeah. Battlezone, that was a favorite game of mine. I, I think Asteroids was the first video game that I ever played. Oh, was it? Yes. I, honestly, I it was remember. back when my father was able to bring my brother and I to a bar, and it was socially acceptable. Can you imagine in the 70s having, having little yes. kids in a bar playing a video game, Nobody, yeah. and they would give us free sodas because my dad was drinking? Yeah. Uh, it, it was a whole different world back then. Oddly enough, I do remember, this brings back a memory, Whitney, I don't think we've ever discussed on the show, but uh, I, I'm from uh, Kentucky, and uh, not that I'm going to just say this happened across the state, but my uncle wanting to spend some time with me, I remember and he come to the house. My mom was like, yeah, you're, you're okay. It's your uncle. We went and hung out at a bar with some of his friends because they had a Pac-Man. <laughs> yeah. I forgot all about that. That's, that's hilarious. Whitney, like... I, I let it, I've led a terrible life as you've <laughs> learned on the show over yeah. time. You know, my, my dad used to take uh, my brother and I to uh, a place they called the Halfway House, which was essentially, <laughs> it, 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 but it was called the Halfway House. It was because the, it was a diner that was, that was literally located halfway between two small towns. And uh, they had a bar. They they had, of course, a diner. And then back in the back room, they had a pinball and an arcade room back there. And my dad would take my brother and I, and he would ship us off to the back room while either he would they would have breakfast or they would have lunch or if it was four thirty in the afternoon, you know, they'd have a couple of Pabst Blue Ribbons. You know, it, it just all depended. But yeah, it's totally socially acceptable, and everybody smoked around the kids. Yeah, that was and, another and, thing. And, and, it was yeah. like you know, it, it didn't really. It was didn't box really smoking too oh, at yeah. my grandparents' house. I oh, mean, yeah. I totally remember just being so much smoke that you could see a haze. Oh, yeah. I do recall that as well. Yeah, but and, and when we would cough, it's just like, uh, you'll be all right. <laughs> you'll, be, yeah. you'll be all right. Yeah, you'll be but, all right. But, you get hair on your chest. Yeah. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Like, it, it was always like some tough answer to it. Like, yeah. yes, oh, yeah. suck it up, kid. Yeah. But to answer your question, I wasn't a pinball fan because the pinballs, if there was any around, they were in the back mm-hmm. of the arcades. And Whitney and I have discussed this on the show. I lived in a more populated area. And Whitney was a little bit more of in a rural space. Mm-hmm. I could not go anywhere, and there wasn't games. If you, if, mm-hmm. if if you went into a corner grocery store, they had six or eight games. Mm-hmm. And, Especially Kmart's. Oh, I mean, I, Kmart was a big deal with having video yeah. games and coin-operated Abs- items, right? Absolutely, in it was. Yeah, in, yes. in the vestibule, you yes, walk yes, in yes. and everything. Yeah, for me, absolutely no, no real love for pinball growing up. I mean. Uh, the pinball that I, that I would see, it was uh, it was the older EM styles or just, just the very very early solid state stuff, and that would all be like Brent's in a back room, and you would have to walk past the Donkey Kongs, the Pac Mans, the Asteroids to go play. I'll just be very frank. What I thought was an inferior experience, you know, an inferior type of game experience, because I could play Donkey Kong or go play something that felt kind of slow and lumbering, mm-hmm. and even though it sounded great and even though it was fun to listen to and, and look at, it, it just wasn't fun. I, to me, anyway, to start with as as a young as a, as a young child, it wasn't until like 2012, 2013 that I got into pinball when we had 
what I consider like the modern resurgence of, of mm-hmm. pinball and that's when the games had they were really predicated by theme electronics music and in uh, in video sometimes video assets and stuff enough to really create an experience and that's when I got in heavy so see I remember as a young kid being able to play pinball machines because my father would play them too he had no interest in video games, yeah. but there was that bridge there that, okay, pinball machines, I could get it. I'll play a game, you play one, and your brother will play one. So, you know, you get three out of a quarter. I think, you know, that was part of it, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He understood. I remember playing Black Knight and hearing that voice, <laughs> and you? I was actually afraid of the voice of <laughs> yeah. the Black Knight. I was you, terrified. You yeah. kind of hit the nail on the head. We're backing into the the pinball machine was basically the the coin-op entertainment Mm -hmm. of your father's generation, Mm -hmm. you know. And then in our generation, I'm assuming, because I know Whitney and I were children of the 80s, and I believe you are too, that's the video game was the... That was the next step. That was the the next next step. step. Yeah, definitely. Absolutely. And so we're looking at this article from 1979, and they're actually talking about there were steps in the world of video gaming, uh, of, of pinball machines, how... Early on, the pinball machines were pretty much just decks of cards and westerns. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So it you basically would call it. Help me. I'm, the, the, it's escaped me, Whitney. Uh, uh, you've either got a themed game or what's the inverse? When, uh, an original title? Yeah, yeah. Just like an origi- an original theme. Yeah, yeah. Generically, it's called an original theme. Yeah. And oddly enough, real quick to circle back, people have sort of clamored for that today. The major pinball producers don't want to take a risk on it, and then some of the kind of the boutique, uh, the smaller independents, they're taking here and there little risks, mm-hmm. but they're still doing licensed themes. Mm-hmm. But back at the in the day, if you kind of look at the genesis of it, keep me honest here, Whitney, mm-hmm. the genesis of pinball was gambling. Oh yes, and yeah. yeah. Oh yes, definitely, definitely gambling, and there was really no licensed theme to think of. So, if you're if you're looking at the '60s and the '70s, I mean, if you think about what was prevalent in society, and especially this being largely a male-dominated um, industry and hobby, yeah, you got a lot of uh, westerns, you got a lot of mm-hmm. decks of playing cards, you got a lot of uh, male sports, de- sport, yes, yeah, sports themes. You got a lot of a lot of imagery that was very male-dominated and uh, and really depicted women in a certain and not so and not so complimentary way sometimes so well, you know we're recording it's, right it's, now it's an industry that's had to grow in that regard yeah we're we're recording right now at the music city multicon which used to be called the grand old game room so it's essentially a video game and pinball convention plus plus, plus a little bit of everything else yeah. and um, we're just having a blast playing all these old pinball machines but to your point some of the older ones i just got finished Playing the Playboy pinball oh, yes. machine. Oh, exactly. Yeah, I mean, you want to talk about a product of the time. Oh. And, and, yeah. and, you know, there, there's been several Playboys, and uh, I, I think the last one was sometime in the '90s. It was a Stern game, yeah. and um, you know, it was even available with the, some of the art was replaceable, and it came <laughs> out of the box with acceptable art. I yes. think it was, but in in the in the bag in the b- bottom of the cabinet, you could replace art in certain places in the game with a little bit more mature themed art. Yes, nine year old me would have gone nuts over yeah. something yeah. like that. Oh yes, and, and you know what? And they they were banking on that. I'm sure. Yeah. So, yes. <laughs> so, but in terms of you know your article and. It's, so the gist of this here is, is you're talking a little bit about uh, I see kisses in the article and what's the other game here is it Lost World? It is Lost. Um, yes, so it is Lost World. They're talking that, that, that by the end of the seventies, 
the visualization and the themes of pinball machines were branching out into more in the sci-fi, the genres yes. that we know and love. And, and it was still very genericized until you get into, um, it was The Who and Wizard, and that mm-hmm. was your first themed game, and Roger Sharp pulled that off. And that's a story that you really need to research, because it was, I don't want to, it's been a bit since I've heard. So talking Roger, Tommy, the pinball wizard really yes. did life imitated yes. art, right? Yes. And it, it, it was basically a happy accident, and I'm probably putting words, and you may be a little bit more familiar with the story than I am, Whitney, I don't, I'm not sure, but at the end of it, Roger, it's been a while since I've heard him tell the story, but it wasn't intended to necessarily license the game, put a license on a pinball, that was the first licensed machine. It, it was a series of happy accidents that led to what we have today, starting with Wizard, which was from Tommy's The Who. And Captain Fantastic was shortly thereafter, kind of in that same genre. Then you were still kind of getting uh, a lot of non th- or, uh, uh, non-licensed games, but it's just grown because that's where the money's at, because that's where the average person walking down the street, walking into an arcade, hey, I know what Jurassic Park is, mm-hmm. and I hear that sound, mm-hmm. or I know what... Uh, Ghostbusters is, or I know what the Adams Family movie is. We talked a little bit about that earlier. Just I just got finished that. playing a 1970s Hulk game. Yeah. That is just crazy to yeah. look at the graphics yeah. of that. Yeah. It's I, it's a blast from the past. It is. I mean, it, it's drawn in it's drawn in that that comic style that that is it's blocky and and it's it's definitely a product of its times. But I, I mean, to Brent's point, I, I mean, all of these licensed themes that we see today. It's uh, it's they're instantly recognizable. They become they become part of the of the overall, uh, I, I guess, kind of universe of that license itself. And uh, today, uh, theme sells games. Theme and mm-hmm. art really do sell pinball machines. And I, I do believe, and I don't think it's a stretch to say this, that in a lot of ways, uh, gameplay and rule set and in over in overall, let's say. I don't want to say quality of game, but let's say experience of game, sometimes is definitely second to just how the game presents itself thematically, artistically, how it sounds, and then the and then let's say the let's say the, the pieces and the parts of the property that they incorporate into like video assets and things like that. We you just didn't have that back in the seventies and in the eighties and um, I, I think that the I think that those machines they at that time they did everything that they could with the, with the properties that they had, but we just didn't have a Jurassic Park or a Star Wars or, or these, these multi-year, multi you know multi-story properties mm-hmm. that take on a generational life of their own. Mm-hmm. You didn't have that back then. You would have. Evil Knievel or Dolly Parton yes. or, or or these. I just got finished playing the Dolly Parton game. It's, 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 <laughs> isn't it a fun game? It is a gr- it is a great game. But you can but that that theme or that license or that person is one person, mm-hmm. and maybe you'll have one or two games based upon a given individual. But more times than not, you would see you'd see the manufacturers go to. Go to each star of the day, like Evil Knievel and Ted Nugent, and, and, and people like that. Captain Fantastic with Elton John, and they would build a machine because it was tied to a to a artist of the day, and that would help sell. And you, you just didn't see uh, you just didn't see a whole lot of uh, 
you know, card playing games or western games, yeah. card card playing themed games or western games in, in the late seventies because I think the industry was starting to figure out that culture will sell the machines for you. Yeah, I made a I think you and I had made a com- I made a comment to you. We were talking a little bit about this after a presentation I gave uh, Friday night that the the themes were so generic before they air quotes broke the seal mm-hmm. on tying to culture and that's a perfect way to put it Whitney yeah. that a lot of the manufacturers I, I've done a presentation on this a lot of the manufacturers would recycle playfields yeah. in pinball mm-hmm. and uh, Gottlieb was one a good example I used in a presentation there was one particular playfield lay, layout they used half a dozen times. All the way from an, an old electromechanical game in the early 60s up to a modern all-digital game. Same exact play field. They had all the patterns. They could cut it out on a machine. They could run it. And it was all non-licensed art. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. and it, they, the, the intention there was, I'm going to make it look a little different. There wasn't that, like I said, breaking the seal to tie it to, to culture. Mm-hmm. But I do want it to look different, so... Oh, that's a different machine. I'll play it. Person off the street may not realize that it's the exact same game they played two months ago. It just looks entirely different. Yeah. So, and the toy industry was doing that as well. We think about the six million dollar man doll, the of uh, Bigfoot. Yeah. It's essentially the mm-hmm. same mold for Chewbacca. I mean, they, oh, yes, <laughs> you know I mean? yes, like, yeah. like yeah. manufacturers need to. They already have something. Yeah. Can we slap a different label on it? Can we change it just a little bit to make it relevant? Absolutely. So the pinball world was doing that, right? Oh yeah, abs- absolutely. Oh yeah, and we see it today. I mean, economies of scale reign supreme, and uh, even in modern pinball today, you you have the same theme used and delivered in two or three different editions of of a modern pinball machine, like mm-hmm. a. Pro or premium or a limited edition or super limited edition or you know put air quotes around whatever you know frothy name you want to use for you want to use for these machines but uh, yeah ultimately economies of scale are, are going to help the help the company be profitable and get the most mileage out of the theme because I mean today almost ev- almost every machine that, that comes out is tied to a theme not not all but a significant portion of them are, and there's licensing costs behind that, and, and of course the manufacturers have to recoup that. But uh, yeah, it's it's not uh, it's not pinball it's not pinball of the 1980s anymore. That's for sure. Yeah. Now the article talks about by 1979 the manufacturers were figuring out that you couldn't have just generic art anymore. That they had to up the ante oh, yes. because yep. artists oh, like yes. Frazenta, Boris. Vallejo, these were super popular, and the back glass had to reflect the times. So let's talk about the artwork. So there are, and I think Dave Christensen was mentioned in this article, Mm -hmm. there are several artists in the pinball world that you can see their game, Mm -hmm. and you just know Python Angelo did that game. Mm -hmm. This individual did that game. Their style speaks for themselves. Mm -hmm. And, And... in this world, which I assume it is in most other worlds that, that involve art, once you find, in my opinion, Whitney, I mean, your, I'd love to hear your opinion on this. Once you get an individual that understands the audience and they can tie that, the art in that game and work with the developer of the play field and then make it appealing to the public, that person, that person stays in pinball for the, they'll do other really? things, oh, yeah. but, it's it every once in a while you'll have a pop up person that'll come in and they did a game 
and then they went off and did something else. But for the most part, the the artist pool, even to this day, is mm-hmm. is pretty stable. Mm-hmm. Some individuals come in. Um, uh, was it Dirty Donnie? That, that Dirty Donnie, yeah, Dirty Donnie Gillis, and I was I was even going to mention Christopher Franchi, modern pinball artist, and Jeremy Packer. He, he goes he goes by a pseudonym named Zombie Yeti. Yeah, so there if we you, go. Yeah, that's if what you I was have, trying to think. If you ever hear Zombie Yeti, uh, you'll 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 instantly uh, you'll instantly know just by his just by his art style. Uh, what machines he's done and everything like that, because uh, the the style of the art actually becomes a, just a crucial portion of the overall personality of the machine. And and then you've got some some artists from prior generations like Greg Ferreras. He's he's a he's a good one to mention. He he. he uh, He's a very long, long-lived artist in the industry, but he's got a certain uh, he's got a certain style to his art. Uh, you know, he's uh, you know he's he's very prolific. Uh, and, you know, he did art like for Avira and then and then other machines earlier on in, in the industry. But these guys uh, these guys stick around for a while because the the, indus- the industry loves their product, and more importantly, the customers love their product. And anymore today, sometimes just art alone. Will sell a pinball machine. Oh, I Just totally agree. Art, mm-hmm. yeah. So if you go out there and look on on the floor today, um, Stern Stern, one of the largest I guess largest manufacturer today of pinball machines, they've got a new machine called Godzilla. Go out and look at the art on that, and it's so stunning. It's stunning, and it's so unique. It's so vibrant. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's that's one of Zombietti's uh, art packages, and it nice. it's it just it's beautiful. It's just beautiful. Yeah. Now, this article shows a picture of Volton Escape Cosmic Doom, and it counters it with the Kiss Pinball Machine. Um, We're talking about the artwork of this Kiss Pinball Machine. This is a focal point of the article, actually, Mm -hmm. that they're anticipating this coming out in 1979. And we notice that the costumes on the Kiss Pinball Machine are from the previous tour instead of the Dynasty Tour. Let's talk about how long it takes to make pinball art to catch up to the current because you made a good point saying it's impossible to keep up at a perfect time. Yes. What's the process of the art for a back glass? So you, if you can, so let's start with today and, and we know industry people cause we've done this for a while, but honestly that's a question we've never asked. And so I'm, I'm going to just apply some modern thought to this is a modern back glass. And I'm quoting air quotes here, glass. It's not glass anymore. It's plastic. And it's not printed on that plastic. It's actually uh, a film of some type. Whitney, you may know what it is right off the material. Yeah, it's it's called a transline. That's that's the name of the product. But it's a very, very thin plastic film. And that's what it's printed to. And that is actually behind the thicker piece of plastic that you see in the back of a modern pinball machine. Modern manufacturing, modern printing, just look at like what we what's out here now for this expo. You could probably have that to your door in a week. So, if, other than economies of scale, how many thousands you're going to make, you obviously want to try to get ahead of the production line. But you could you could conceivably have that done in a relatively short short amount of time. You're doing it all on computer. Yep. You're not doing all physical cut and paste imagery. Mm-hmm. You're really not having somebody do anything with actual paint. They're mm-hmm. doing it all digitally. Yeah. If you need to make a change, you can make it at the drop of a hat. Yeah. Whereas the art that's on your kiss here. You got to paint that. 
You got to send it off to Kiss and have them approve that. That's right. And right. it's and not, Gene's a stickler. And Gene's a stickler. Exactly. <laughs> it's not like you're You've just got an image to maintain. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You, you're not going to send him an encrypted email to his agent so that the art doesn't leak out as a prototype. Mm-hmm. But in 1979, you're going to do that today, yeah. and he's going to be able to see it within an hour yeah. if he's available. Mm-hmm. You know. Whereas at the time of this. They they were they would have had to have traded the proofs back and forth, and then yeah. today in the industry you see some of these proofs that are leaking out, especially as the Williams assets have sold. A lot of that, like a Python Angelo artwork, that's out there right now in in like proof form. But th- think of that: you had to have someone paint it, you had to have it proofed if it needed to be checked. If Gene wanted his head just a little bit bigger than is it Paul? I'm not a super <laughs> Well, you gotta you gotta fix that. Yeah. There's a story there too, by the way. That's an inside sort of a thing with Apollo 13, but um, that's a whole other conversation. <laughs> uh, so that hell has to be proofed, and then you have to actually have the screens made, and then it has to be printed on glass because when that machine was made, that was an actual piece of glass. Yeah. So, so you're looking at potentially months and months of turnaround time from from yes. a beginning to an end process and not not to not to belittle that in any way shape or form i mean that's how the industry was brought the art industry or the art printing industry was brought up and so it was it was a product of the time that was the technology that they had at the time and that was just the process that they had to use but but over the decades it's gotten uh, the, the, the turnaround cycle on it's just gotten so much shorter so uh, you you do have to take that in, into consideration though because that that lead time had to be baked into the you know into the overall production cycle on these machines and and of course it was extremely expensive i mean to Brent's point if they had to go back and in uh, let's say increase the size of someone's head that's paying the artist to go back and fix that and then to rebuild the screen or to recut the screens and it just everything involved very the best way to put it, it was extremely labor intensive and time intensive yeah. on top of it that makes sense yes yeah totally mm-hmm. collectible back glass from glass from 40 years ago I'm sure there's a subset of collectors looking for that. A hundred percent, and um, even more so than just collecting the glass as as art. Pinball uh, folks, for they're trying to put a machine back together. It's glass, and it's tempered glass. It it is. If you've ever broken a piece of tempered glass or hit a piece of tempered glass, you'd be surprised at what kind of shock it'll take. And you'll be surprised at how little it'll take to shatter it. Yeah, really. And again, being glass, that there, there, there's well, there's many more machines that are survived than has the back glasses on any of these games. Yeah, yep. Interesting. Yeah, and it, it, it's just it's a durability issue. It's a it's an availability issue. It's a cost of materials issue nowadays. Uh, at the Brent's point, we we're talking about the translite material. You don't really get a, a quote unquote a glass. Bad glass anymore unless you're paying for the top tier premium machine uh, edition of a machine, and that adds additional monies because they're they're producing the art on glass in a much in a much older style format of of production than just digital than just digital printing to plastic that, that they do today. So yeah, it's again it's it's all economies of scale at this point. Interesting. So anybody who wants to find out more about pinball and video games. Tell us about your podcast. Uh, it's the uh, Broken Token Classic Gaming Podcast, and we're at brokentoken.com, uh, facebook.com slash brokentoken, 
and uh, Twitter at Broken Token. And then Whitney, like, where are we at aggregator wise? Uh, we we cannot not be found. So we are on. And you're on a bulletin board system because I have a Commodore 64. I'm still using. I'll get with you after this, and then we, <laughs> we can get it hooked up. No, we're on every every major aggregator service: Apple Podcasts, uh, you know, Google Podcasts, or I'm sorry, Apple Music, you know, Google Podcasts, Amazon, uh, you name it, Pandora, Spotify. It's iHeartRadio. It's just go out and search us. You'll find us. I and mean, we're kindred spirits because we love all this retro stuff. Oh, exactly, exactly. And, and to the point that we made at the very beginning, I mean, we're, we are a mixed gaming podcast, but we have a lot of pop culture talk that sneaks in there as we go because you can't talk about video games and, and the, the product of the 80s without Star Trek and Star Wars and, and just and all these other just pollination topics that get brought into the conversation and uh and brent and i like to talk so ray bradbury was born in 1920 and died in 2012 i got to meet this great writer a couple of times once at the los angeles world con in 2006 but before that at the atlanta world science fiction convention confederation which was an oddity for a writer who doesn't fly nor drive. It was across the United States from his then home in Los Angeles. But that was a particular trait he shared with Isaac Asimov. Isaac wouldn't fly either. Fortunately, Ray lived in Los Angeles. It gave him the opportunity to work closely with the film and television industry in addition to the publishing that he did. While Ray had been writing since 1941, his big break came in 1950 with the publication of The Martian Chronicles. This was decades before NASA began landing probes on the Red Planet to discover what it was made of. Canals were still a thing, and we still believed that there could be life on Mars. After the new science came in about the planet, he was asked if he would change the stories in his book. He said he would not alter a word. And he didn't have to. The stories in the Martian Chronicles are not about how-to on colonizing Mars. It's not a hard science fiction book. Mars is just the canvas on which he constructs the events that shed a glimpse on the state of humanity. In 1980, the book was turned into a three-part miniseries for television. One of the major changes to the story was the introduction of Colonel John Wilder, portrayed by Rock Hudson. It was a connective character for the teleplay. The book itself was a collection of short stories, with very little actually connecting them together. Many of the stories were not shown in the miniseries. Otherwise, they would have needed an entire television season just to get through the book. One of the stories that I found memorable was Usher 2. It was a tale of a wronged man who built a home on Mars where the building codes were not as strict as they are on, as they were on Earth and invited a major critic over. The critic had said the protagonist's stories were too fantastical for the modern readership. They were simply unbelievable. They could not be published. So the protagonist constructed a house 
filled with the torture devices out of the stories of Edgar Allan Poe. Then he invited the critic over and ran him through the gauntlet of them. I would have loved to have seen that one done. Oh, oh, the torture of reading a book before a media presentation is ever made. But that wasn't Ray's first foray into the world of Tinseltown. He started out writing television back in 1951 with episodes for several anthology series, Lights Out and Dimension X, to name a couple. He would go on to adapt his short story, I Sing the Body Electric, for The Twilight Zone, when Rod Serling went ahead and produced that show. He wrote the screenplay for It Came From Outer Space in 1953, and in that same year, he was called in to review a movie the studio was about to release, The Beast from 20,000 Fathoms. After viewing the film, in his critique to the film producers, he commented that the scene with the creature attacking the lighthouse looked an awful lot like his short story, The Foghorn. If you watch the film today, you will notice that it is credited to, based on a story by Ray Bradbury. He went on to write more teleplays for TV anthologies, and a few books of his were adapted into movies. The Illustrated Man, Something Wicked This Way Comes. Actually, believe it or not, this was a Disney film. And the animated The Halloween Tree. But in 1966, Francois Truveau wrote the screenplay and directed a film from a Ray Bradbury novel that has haunted me the rest of my life. Fahrenheit 451. Taking the concept of Nazi book burnings to its extreme point, books are banned. Any book. Firemen don't put out fires. They raid home, find books, and torch them. Fire extinguishers are replaced with flamethrowers to turn illegal knowledge, knowledge the state doesn't want you to have, into ash. But that was not the be-all and end-all of his career. Disney called on him to work on one of the rides for Disneyland's Tomorrowland. The sponsors of the ride, after viewing what Ray had done, objected to the use of his term, fire. They wanted him to change it to energy. Well, Ray thought this was a bad idea. To him, fire was energy. Fire was the source of things. Fire was not burning something down. The use of the word energy, well, it was boring. So he refused to change it. And then Monsanto, the sponsors, pulled their support for the ride. But he was later given another chance to work for the mouse. As he wrote the script for Spaceship Earth when Epcot was built. Ray Bradbury had a productive life. One spurred on by the fact that he lived so close to Hollywood. And that he didn't have to fly. My name is Shane, and welcome to this month's uh, Space Report. The most interesting letter on the page, in my opinion, comes from a Kay Young uh, from Carlton City. And she writes, I'm a big Thunderbird fan, and I would love to know if you ever thought about bringing it back. And the response was, glad to hear you're a Thunderbird fan, 
however, the OTC, the rights to the property belong to OTC Entertainment and would need their permission to bring it back. Maybe if they read this, I would, they will trigger a thought, so let's hope so. What's really interesting about this, of course, this letter was written in 1979, and Thunderbirds have actually come back several times. First of all, we had the really awful turbocharged Thunderbirds in the mid-90s, which was a retooling of the original footage. But it was so kiddie and so awful, Jerry Anderson actually took his credit off uh, the show. Um, The cast was there. I mean, we had Tim Curry, Dan Castellano, who we'd know as Homer Simpson from uh, The Simpsons. And the cast was there, but it was so awful. I mean, you can actually find it on YouTube. Um, just search for Chris Dalek. He has most of the episodes on there, so watch it at your own power. And then we had the 21st Century Films uh, version as well, which is... They took the LPs that they were done in the 60s and they actually done their own version of Thunderbirds using all the original tools, so all... all all the puppets, they made their own puppets, and it looked amazing, actually. I don't think you can actually find it on DVD or Blu-ray anymore, which is such a shame. Um, Then you had the CGI uh, version, which would come out on children's television over here a couple of years ago, which I haven't seen, I have to be honest with you, but apparently it was was, uh, very, very good. Our next letter comes from a Jeff... Fiesenhoff from Daly City, California. And he writes, I seem to remember an animated television show with a large jet before taking off from a secret base. Uh, those numbers of cargo boxes were placed underneath the jet and some of them were put into the jet's hold. And it was called Thunderbirds. And the response was, you're right, Jeff, it was Thunderbirds. And the craft you're talking about is International Refugees Transport of Thunderbird 2. Uh, Virgil Tracy, Section 1 of the 6 pods, con- contains heavy rescue equipment like the mold and the mini set Thunderbird 4. And once the crack pod is directly underneath the green craft, Virgil lowers the main body of the Thunderbird 2 and becomes a section of the craft similar to the pods of Space 99 Eagles transporters. Thunderbird 2 is 250 feet long and a windspan of 180 feet. Then 60 foot high and a maximum speed of 5,000 miles an hour. What's, what's really interesting about that, actually, is that the uh, first Thunderbirds episode I ever watched uh, was uh, the episode where actually Thunderbird 2 got shot, de- shot down at the start of the episode. Um, I think it, the episode was called Terror in New York, I think, off the top of my head. It's the episode where they're moving the Empire State Building across the city and it collapses on the two reporters. And at the right at the start of the episode, as I said, Thunderbird 2 got mistaken by um, by, uh, by an unidentified flying object by a US naval carrier and actually gets shot down. So Thunderbird 2 is actually out of action for the rest of the episode. So when the Empire State Building does collapse on those two reporters... They actually, it was actually more of a race against time than it usually is, because they had to go relatively slowly on, on, on the 
transporter and Thunderbird 4 barely got there in time. And that was actually the first Thunderbirds episode I ever watched. I had it on VHS. Um, the the two-hander. Two uh, and the next uh, one comes in from uh, Ron Jackson. And there's been the rumours of a Space 99 coming back for a third season. Uh, I believe the rumours are true. Will Space 99 ever be coming back? Uh, the response was, Ron, they say there's no smoke without fire. There are exceptions to every rule. I think this is the case of Thunderbirds. Uh, I think this is the case for Space 1999 and a, and a possible third season. It's always possible that a third it's always possible that the show will return to the screen for a third season, but not for the immediate future. As we all know, Space 1999's third season never happened. However, recently, uh, there was a reboot by, Speak, by Big Finish, uh, and they released the first episode, Breakaway, by Nicholas Briggs last year, and that was a fantastic listen. I do recommend you go into the Big Finish website and picking that up. I have released the, a proper first season uh, of storage, which I haven't listened to. My goodness, I'm actually bad at catch, what, listening or watching stuff at the moment. Uh, but um, it's really, really good. And I do recommend you picking that up. It's a shame Space 99 didn't get a third season, but first season was Space 99 was good. Second season was awful, so as as much as I would love a third season of Space 1999, the direction it was going in the second season, I'm not sure if that was a big loss, if I'm honest with you. Um, but uh, our last letter, uh, this month is from Lee Stanford from Huntsville, Alabama. And he's right, in Starlog 22, you said the Mark 9 Hawks from the Space 1999 episode The War Games was old and outdated, yeah, Alan Carter said there was twice the speed of the Eagles. And also in the Moon Base Air for Technical book, it said the Hawks were built four years after the Eagle. So what happened to them? And the response was the Hawks were a victim of of one thing, a space, a space pioneers filled most of all, and that's budget. Uh, the Mark 9 Hawks was a more expensive spacecraft than the Eagle, but the Hawks did not perform as the main in various functions. Therefore, the cost of such a craft wasn't justified and since Earth was not at war with anyone, why well, use such warships? Again, what's really interesting about that latter is that we all know, or hopefully we all know, that the Space 99 was actually retooling of the previous uh, Jerry Anderson's show, The UFO. Uh, Space 99, Space 1999's first season was supposed to be the second season of UFO. And UFO was very much heavily involved in uh, alien invasion. So the fact that they say that Earth wasn't uh, in at war with anyone was not part of the original concept of Space 1999. Because, as I said, it was meant to be the second season of UFO. So the fact that the uh, UFO, the fact that uh, the 
the earth wasn't at war with anyone was I think quite quite a uh, quite an interesting thing to say actually if I'm honest with you uh, and that is it there's only a few letters on the page this month but I am Shane and that was uh, the space report <laughs> Let's talk about our convention review. We went to Music City Multicon, and that was Halloween weekend in Lebanon, Tennessee. How would you describe Music City Multicon? They had a pretty good turnout, and it had like a, a whole room full of games, all kinds of retro arcade games, pinball games. Uh, they had Ms. Pac-Man, Joust, and a lot of stuff, a lot of re- really old, familiar stuff. What did you think about the pinball machines? They had the Incredible Hulk from the 70s, and they had Black Knight, and a lot of newer ones too, like Twilight Zone and Iron Maiden. Yeah, I mean, it, it's amazing because there's just so many machines there on free play, so one admission gets you to play all night long. And I was there to midnight on Friday night playing. It's As far as I could think, it's the only convention in the area that stays out really past normal convention hours even the panels were running in the late hours of the evening because outside of dragon con not too many conventions run round the clock yeah it was great to that it stayed open and you could just stay there and play games because of course these are the games you can, you can just get hooked on and just and just want to keep playing it over and over and we presented a star trek panel we did star trek 101 and had a pretty good turnout there and um discussed a lot of cool Star Trek stuff, and the audience was great. They participated a lot, and so we got a lot of um, uh, new Trekkies that we met. And also, the dealer's room was impressive because the focal point was a lot of retro video games. And they even had a guy there making custom Atari games. So it's like new games for the Atari 2600. So there's enough of a fan base for retro games to warrant new games for the systems. Yeah, it was a fun con. Kenner presents you alien action figure. Alien action figure. New from Kenner. Starlog Magazine, issue number 26, cover date, September 1979. Communications, letters to Starlog Magazine. This is from Paul Hoodley from Edinburgh, Scotland. I'm writing this letter in response to an article on Doctor Who in Starlog 18. In my view, Tom Baker isn't my idea of the Doctor when compared with the original, William Hotner, or the later Doctors Patrick Troughton and John Pertwee. My idea of the Doctor does not run around with robot mutts and half-naked savage girls. So please don't trust your Baker's Doctor Who down your throats. More on Hotner or Troughton, please. Starlog responds... Paul, as much as we appreciate our fans around the world, our first obligation is to our American readers, who, for the most part, have only been given the opportunity to see Baker in the role. Yeah, take that, Paul.
Log Entries, latest news from the worlds of science fiction and fact. Mickey Mouse goes to Tokyo. A 600-acre landfill peninsula in Tokyo Bay will be the size of the next Walt Disney Productions theme park, scheduled to open in spring of 1983. Some specific plans for the park, currently named Tokyo Disneyland, were announced shortly after final agreements on the joint development of the project were signed by Card Walker of the Disney Organization and Masatomo Takahashi, president of the Oriental Land Company of Tokyo. So this is a news report saying that Disney was going to expand outside of the United States. Well, and we know Disney did expand, but um, I, I didn't know about this one in Japan. So this is the earliest expansion outside of the U.S., and we know that Disney now has footing in many countries. So that must have been exciting news for Disney fans at that time, especially at that part of the world. It's interesting. I didn't know that it was that Disney would be popular there, especially where they had the, the Japanese animation, which is totally different from Disney animation. And let's compare it and contrast it to what Disney is now. Disney has not only the Marvel Universe, but Star Wars. I remember going to Celebration Anaheim, and there were so many Japanese fans there. Star Wars is ginormous in Japan. So, you know, there is that connection modern time with Star Wars, Disney, th this empire that they build has a worldwide scope. That is interesting. And and so and yeah, so Disney was always popular in Japan, so now and now Disney has Star Wars. That is amazing. Cylons for tourists. The Universal Studios tour added a new attraction on June 9th which will run through this summer and fall. As tourists, 20,000 per day, ride on trams through the movie-making facilities at the studio, they are captured by a renegade band of Cylons, leftovers from Battlestar Galactica, and herded aboard a huge section of a base star where the imperious leader threatens them and the entire world with annihilation. Well, this was supposed to be a short-run stint at Universal Studios, this Battlestar Galactic experience, but it proved to be so popular that it was permanent for years. My brother and I saw it in the mid-80s. Oh, wow. It, it does sound neat. And and the, um, you know, like the sci-fi exhibits are probably more popular because they're, they're more different. It was one of the best things about that tour because you went on sets of The Six Million Dollar Man, on Bionic Woman, and then you had this... Alistar Galactica experience, and it was it was it was a mix of live action as well as animatronics. Yeah, that sounds really cool. Yeah, even for now, it would have been cool. I, I wish they still had it. I'd love to enjoy something like this, but today's kids don't don't know about that. All they care about is Pokemon, Yu Gi Oh, or, or online games or something. Yeah, trash. Hugo nominees announced. As you read this, the ballots have already been gathered and are now being counted, but the identities of 1978's Hugo Award winners will remain secret until Sunday, August 26th. All winners will be announced that date at CECON, the 37th World Science Fiction Convention. So the nominees for the best novel include Blind Voices by Tom Ramey. Dream Snake by Vonda McIntyre. The Fated Sun, Kishrith by C.J. Cherith. 
Up the Walls of the World by James Tiptree, and The White Dragon by Anne McCaffrey. Now, I have to say, the Anne McCaffrey Dragon books, I loved as a teenager. So that yeah, would be my was, vote right there. She was very popular. So, so it's interesting that there are some um, some familiar authors there. Totally. The um, it, It's funny. What I remember about the Anne McCaffrey books, I was in seventh grade reading them, and I borrowed them from a kid in my Spanish class named Adam. And this is why I remember about it. He let me borrow it. I go home, read them. And then when I brought back one of them, he said, you cracked the spine. You know when you open it? The paperback's too much. It has that line on the side. Mm-hmm. And the kid had a meltdown because of that. I was like, mm, well, I read it. I keep them all in perfect order. And I keep them perfectly mint. You cracked the spine. And I was like, I just shrugged my shoulders. Like, I don't know what you want me to do. I mean, get over it, kid. So that's every time I look at my, my Anne McCaffrey books, that's what I think about is cracking the spine on Adam's book. Okay, but now you know what that's like, right? Because you want to keep all of your oh, things yeah, in mint condition I'm, I'm, now. I'm the fanatic now, of yes, course. Yes, yes. <laughs> Are you? Um, Not that much. Maybe I'm a little bit more aware of it now. Yes. The, the thing is, our, our Starlog magazines, mm-hmm. we, we, so we're we're trying not to break the, um, if you call it the spine in these, where the staples are. The the thing is, in the old days, I, I read my star logs. I would fold the magazine so that, you know, and so it would have that crease there. Yes. And it made it easier to read that way. So I would mm-hmm. always fold them when I was reading an article, you know, fold it inside out. Yes. But, yeah. but I don't do that now with ours. <laughs> Danger. The emergency destruct system is now activated. Ridley Scott, directing Alien through an artist's eyes. This is such an insightful article interviewing Ridley Scott, the mastermind behind Alien. Now, the first time I was very aware of Ridley Scott as a director was Blade Runner. Alien, I was too young to really know about directors or anything. It took a couple years before I was able to understand the credits, follow people. I mean, that's the one that hit me the hardest was Blade Runner. And now looking, you know, or shortly afterwards, looking at Ridley Scott, his scope of work, I said, this guy is a true visionary. Yes, he became a very well-known director. And, I mean, I think, and, you know, you know, like you said, you didn't really keep up with directors back then. But I think directors really were not that popular. And unless it was someone that was huge, like like Ridley Scott or Spielberg, people didn't know directors. Certainly knew, not, they, like, right. not like they know actors. Yes, yes. And, and to your point, I remember if I saw George Lucas, I would get excited if I saw... Steven Spielberg, I get excited. Like, as a kid, those were really the only names that I knew. Because Ridley Scott did rated R stuff. Yeah, yes. And and so this article says it was actually, so Alien was actually his first movie. We'll say the first big one. Yes. But the thing is, so so both Ridley Scott and Alien became became huge. They were widely known. And, and he was not the first choice, which is... It's understandable. A lot of people don't want to take chances at a big budget with someone that's a newcomer. Exactly. And so it, it is, it didn't, doesn't it say that he actually had to go back later and ask if, if the script was still available so he could work on it? Yes. So he was excited about the project. He thought it was intriguing. And, and he's interested in, in horror and this kind of thing. And he said he, you know, you know, he liked the script because it was different for, because of the way they usually do horror. This one had, you know, more character development, and in the beginning, you couldn't tell who the main character was going to be. Th- things like that that really made it 
that made it different and and unique. And he's quoted in the article that he gives credit to not just himself, but also to the others that were involved, especially Giger, the aesthetic of the alien, the alien world. There's more to it than just his direction. Alien is layers upon uniqueness. Yeah, there's there's um, all kinds of stuff in here about how, about developing the the alien itself and the different versions of it, and how the the actors were were in the movie, and and even having like having the first female lead, of course, which is still something widely talked about with Sigourney Weaver. And there's even in the article pictures of the storyboard art, and he felt it was necessary. It says, I felt obliged to do storyboards. This was prior to the employment of any of the several artists who were later to contribute the visual concept of the film. So storyboarding for each scene was at its earliest stages at this point. And it's very popular to do in science fiction movies. Yeah, it looks like something that would be more appropriate for science fiction. Action movies. Okay, yeah, for, yeah, for action too, just to see, to see how something's gonna go. Because if it's just two people sitting there talking, you, you don't need it as much. There's no such thing as breakfast at Tiffany's storyboarding. Right, yeah. So for, um, for something with a lot of special effect, they, they would do that. Now at the time, the budget was 4.5 million. And he knew in order to work in the Giger concepts to the level that would need to be, they would have to raise it. That's where storyboards came in. They had to prove that the look that they needed, the feel that they needed, the grandeur of it all, in order to do it, they had to get more money. They asked for $9.5 million, and they ended up getting $8.5 million, so nearly double of what the budget was going to be. Now, now that's another interesting point, though. The directors sort of have to know how much a movie is going to cost to make, and I think it's amazing that they can just sort of do that in their head, like, well, I know I can't do this for $4 million. Mm-hmm. So and it, and it was great though that he did he did get twice as much as they were going to give him. And he's the artist of the storyboards, and I think that's the important thing about the storyboarding and his way of presenting it is if you're asking for money or something, if you were just to verbalize and say the sets are going to be big, the artwork is going to be grand, we need more money. That would be very difficult to relate that to someone who you're asking money for. But if you're able to draw out the scenes and show them how necessary it is, how intricate the the visuals are going to be, then the prospective lo- ones that are financing the project can see why this needed to be done a certain way. Yeah, it gives them idea like that. Like, I mean, when you look at the script, though, you know that the, if the script has an alien bursting out of someone's chest, that's going to <laughs> yeah. cost something. Yeah, to do it right. Right. To, to make it look scary, if this was intended to be a comedy, it would be different. But if it's intended to be a horror movie, it has to look realistic enough. And they talk about in the article about the chest bursting scene. Yes. And they said by design, it was supposed to, the alien at this point was supposed to be phallic looking. And I've never looked at that and thought that. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, that is disturbing. It, it is. And then to read, well, and, and other people have, have, have caught on to this later though, that the, as the article mentions, the, the movie was, was sexual in some ways. Um, it, it was about invasion of the body, like mm-hmm. rape. And so, and yeah, these are things that, that it does address, address in a way that's, um, that, that it's sort of subtle, but, but yeah, but once someone tells you, you're like, oh yeah, definitely. And they on the set 
created different terms for different points on the alien, such as the chest burster. They came up with this, the, the face hugger. That wasn't a fan-made term. That's one that they developed, the face hugger. And also, when the fully developed alien was coming around, their term for him was the big chap. Yeah, that was interesting, too, because I had never thought of that, that they would have had different names for the different um, versions of the alien in the movie. And, and of course, the face hugger thing has really become popular. And, you know, they redid it in the um, that last Suicide Squad movie, having a different type mm-hmm. of face hugger. Oh, I never thought about it like that. You're right. Now, they also mentioned that even though they had to ask for a lot more money, they still did not have the space on the sets. They go to say that Star Wars had 13 sound stages, whereas they only had five. So that means that every set that they made, they had to destroy and then rebuild another one. So think about that. All of those beautiful sets there, they're not even in private collections. They said they were all destroyed. I I can kind of see that happening in Hollywood a lot because so much gets made, you can't really keep it all. Mm -hmm. But, but yeah, to think that they only had that many sets so they could only, like, like film that much at a time. And they didn't plan on having a sequel. Yeah, and so you've got all these sets that, um... Like one, you know, once one gets torn down, you can't go and re-film something. You can't mm-hmm. go and reshoot something you've already done. So mm-hmm. they had to be really careful with it. And it's amazing to think how good the movie was, knowing that. Yes, very much so. It speaks about the collaboration with artist Giger and how the work that he did was so organic and actually difficult to make, but it was worth it because they wanted that unique look. Even the eggs. The eggs had to be a certain shape, a certain form. All the details that Giger came up with, they wanted him on the set to make sure everything was just perfect. And also the spacesuits that were being used. They didn't use any standard spacesuits. They had the artist that we know as Mobius design them. So we had different artistry from different angles, which I think it's such a great idea. That's what gives Alien its unique look is the collaboration of the creators they they made everything different and it still fit in the movie it was still you know it was still a certain look even though even though you had different artists it still had the director behind it who who knew what he wanted and everything it, it was just it was awesome the way it came together and, and Ridley Scott was the one who chose Giger it was like he picked mm-hmm. him because of, of Necronomicon absolutely that rolls us into the next article H.R. Giger, Behind the Alien Forms. And Giger was, it was spelled G-I-G-E-R, mm-hmm. and they and they did, they did say in, in this article it's pronounced Giger. I've been pronouncing it wrong my whole life, do you know that? I always called him Geiger. Well, yeah, I would have too in this case. So he designed the, the uh, this very popular book called The Necronomicon, which had these weird pictures in it of monsters or aliens and weird positions and everything. Very sexual. And, and yeah, and so to, to say... You, it was totally erotic, the book. To, to say you like something like that is kind of... <laughs> you know, it's, uh, it sounds creepy. It does, it does. But he's such a fascinating person. Uh, the fact that he knew Salvatore Dali. That was neat, too. Mm-hmm. And, and so Salvatore Dali was a fan? It's it's just amazing. It is because he had a Giger had a a book of published works with these disturbing images. 
he had a hard time getting into mainstream houses. He was he was brought up in Switzerland, and he wanted to expand his work. In fact, there was a Dune project that was supposed to go on in the 70s, and that he was going to be one of the ones that was doing artwork and design for them. And this actually, this article in Starlog shows some of his work that would have been in Dune. But in fact, some of the work for Dune was tweaked a little bit, and we could see the influence in Alien. Yeah, this is the Dune production. There's actually a, I think it's on Netflix. It's Jodorowsky's Dune, which is totally different than the Dune that would be produced by David Lynch. Yes. And that's another, what would happen if? What if this version of Dune came to the fore? We would have never gotten the David Lynch version of Dune. And this version of Dune would have looked very much like Alien. So to think about that is kind of wild. Yeah, another uh, weird thing that could have happened. So Giger did train in the military. Later on, he went to the School of Arts in Zurich. And because of this book that he produced in 1977, the Necronomicon, that is what brought attention to him. That's what when Salvatore Dali thought it was amazing. People started looking at his work and seeing the bizarrity of it and realizing that this guy has potential of doing more. And it's wonderful that he started doing movies because that seems like a very good niche for him. He, he, he is so different from a lot of other artists, and so there's a lot he could bring to the table. And specifically with his work on the production of Alien is that they brought him in not only to consult the artwork, but to do hands-on work. We look at that derelict ship at the beginning of the movie, and we see that large alien creature. He actually carved that himself. He was the one that was building that. So not only is he talented with pen and ink and brush, but also with sculpture. That's amazing. Yeah, he, He's a multi-talented artist. And all his stuff was so good for horror. That's the thing. I mean, he... He was such a good fit for this movie, which, of course, Ridley Scott knew. Every day. He quotes in saying, Every day Ridley Scott asked for the book. He'd say, I'd like to have it look like this painting or that one. This is what he wanted the space jockey to look like. And so that space jockey that was early on in the film was very much inspired by the book. And the egg chamber. He wanted to make sure that the lighting was perfect for the egg chamber. Ridley Scott made sure that Giger had involvement in not only the design, but the actual feel of the set. I don't hear that too often with directors, asking artists to not only create something, but to set the mood as well and get some input. Well, movies have lighting directors, so it's, you know, it's like it would be a different person than the artist doing that. True. But but this is neat that how that Ridley Scott could just point at at something in the, in the book and tell Giger that I want something like this. I mean it's it's like a lot of the artwork had already been done because it was just <laughs> it was picked out of the pages of the book. When asked who does Giger paint for, he says my paintings seem to make the strongest impression on people who are, well, who are crazy. A good many people think as I do. If they like my work and they are creative. Or if they are crazy. Oh, that's for sure. 
This is Steve Sansweet of Rancho Obi-Wan. Whenever I feel like hearing about Star Wars, I listen to Star Podlog. Hi, I'm Michael Havens. And I'm Andrea Havens. And together we run ICCCon in Nashville, Tennessee. ICNashville.com. And IC Toys, 526 East Irish Drive, Nashville. No collection too big or too small. We buy it all. Check out our 27 Facebook groups about Star Wars and collecting toys at imperialcommissary.com. That's www.imperialcommissary.com. We are lucky enough to be here today in order to, uh, well, Andrea, you tell them. (laughs) We are discussing From Buck Rogers to Buck Rogers by Stephen J. Sansweet from the Star Log Magazine, issue number 26. The way we're going to start off here, because we actually, uh, Steve is one of our friends, and we get to call him Steve, which is pretty cool. We'll tell you about why later. But um, Andrea's going to read the first part of this, because it really gives you a good feel of Steve Sansweet's personality and his passion for collecting space toys. So the issue starts out, a new generation is turning turning on to space toys and robots. They march across the room, guns blazing, smoke billowing, in ominous puffs. Torsos twisting, gears meshing, pistons pulsating, and heads and chests popping. Open and shut. In the place of bellies, some have television screens showing moon landings or battles between prehistoric creatures. From their innards comes a cacophonous din of buzzes, whirs, beeps, clanks, and even some chilling laughter. The robot army is on the march, but the only thing in these miniature tin and plastic automations are likely to capture are the hearts and imagination imagination of delighted children and adults. The battery-powered and clockwork robots are just one part of the 45-year history of toys with an outer space or science fiction theme. Although conceived for children, many of the earlier toys now occupy places of honor in homes of hundreds of space toy collectors all over the world. The huge success of Star Wars has sparked a resurgence of interest in older space toys and uncorked a flood of of modern-day rockets, laser pistols, character dolls, and just about anything else a toy company thinks it can slap a space label on. And that's the wonderful thing right there. That's Steve Sansweet to a T. He is such a collector, and to have the opportunity to read this article, I've never read this article before. Have you, Andrea? I have not, no. Yeah, and to get to read this article and to see where he started and where his imagination started and his collection started, it's really amazing. And these space toys were what got it started. And for him to mention Star Wars and how adult collectors are finally starting to put these space toys on shelves, it's really, really neat to see a essentially the the dawn of our our collecting thing we do i mean we both collect you collect we do yes what do you collect i collect jawas and leias mainly jawas and leias she has a lot of those new rebels too i do though. i like there's the a, rebels there's a lot of modern up there i know that <laughs> much and uh i collect boba fett boba fett is definitely my focus or vintage star wars toys pretty much anything vintage star wars 1977 through 88 but um stan is the premier vintage star wars and modern star wars and everything star wars everything collector star in wars. The world. <laughs> Um, you know, it was cool. One, one time when we first, the first time ever that we actually connected with Steve Sansweet to tell you, this is the author of the article, Steve Sansweet. Um, he runs Rancho Obi-Wan out in Panoma, California, and it is chicken barns, but beautiful chicken barns, all climate controlled and everything with the largest vintage Star Wars and modern Star Wars collection in the world. 
And uh, you can go out there. You can uh, go take a tour. Tours and stuff. Yep. Yeah. He does it for uh, schools and stuff too, right? Yeah. He, yes. The class trips go there, which is a cool class trip if you ask me. We only went to the post office. Right? I mean, we never had fun <laughs> class trips like that. <laughs> but um, the cool thing about Steve, the first time we ever met or connected was uh, for ICCCon back in 2018 when we were when my wife just let me be a crazy person and go <laughs> – Throw a crazy convention. Uh, we rented a giant um, AG park down in Franklin, Tennessee. It technically wasn't in Nashville. We're in Nashville now, don't worry. Four-star hotel at the Music City Sheridan, so check it out. ICCCon 2022. But um, for ICCC, it was just ICCC at the time. It was. We didn't even have the ICCCon hashtag. No. Um, so that's when that was. And, uh, Steve Sansweet, I called him up and I said, Hey, Steve. Well, I wrote him because, uh, he was on my Facebook group. And I wrote him and I said, Hey, Mr. Sansweet, do you think it would be okay, um, if, uh, maybe you could come out to the show and, uh, you know, just sign some autographs, stuff like that, and represent Rancho LB1? And it would be awesome. And he was like, Oh, absolutely. That sounds great. Collector show for collectibles for collectors. I love it. I definitely come out. And Steve Sansweet came out and he was just the nicest guy. He was a really nice guy. He did, uh, what did he do? He did the panel. He did a panel. He did a panel. All about collecting and he showed off a bunch of his collection. Um, it was really, really cool. And we've had the opportunity to become friends with Mr. Sansweet. And, uh, we still call him Mr. Sansweet sometimes, but he doesn't like that too much. You know what? I'll have Andrea tell you the story of why uh, why we have to call him Steve now. So we were at the Chicago celebration yep. and we just walked up to his very busy booth just to say hello really quick and he took time out of his line of people to say hello and he walked over and we said hello Mr. Sansweet and he goes don't call me Mr. Sansweet call me Steve and we both looked at each other and looked at him and said yeah we just we can't do that we weren't raised that way (laughs) (laughs) as we're standing over two giant crates directly from Lucasfilm with what was it there was like there's um I think costumes no I think it was like statues or something I think there was uh the Clone Wars ones oh yeah like an Obi-Wan and Ahsoka or something yeah and, uh, yeah, he, it was so cool because right on the side it said Lucasfilm. Right. Right. right down there, yeah. But um, that's the wonderful thing about collecting. There is never an end in sight. It can be anything in the world um, that you want to collect. And this article, if you haven't read it yet, I highly suggest going to read it. But if you haven't read it yet, it really talks about what makes this passion in collecting. What's your favorite part of collecting, Andrea? My favorite part is finding new things I never knew existed. I, I love seeing something strange and unusual that just I've never seen before. Yeah, and, uh, you know, my favorite part about collecting, since you didn't bother to ask, dear, my favorite <laughs> part of collecting is uh, it's just hanging out with the people. Like, we just went up to uh, Columbus, Ohio, or Cincinnati? Cincinnati, Cincinnati. Ohio. Um, and we did a classic IC meetup. We haven't done one of those in how many years? Oh, gosh. Five years, I think. Five years, maybe. It's uh, been a something while. like that. It's been a while. But uh, essentially, all it is is I rent a conference room at one of the hotels that are near. Um, it's usually a hotel connected to whatever toy show is in the area, uh, toy show or convention. We've done yes. them at celebrations and stuff. We have. And they've been pretty crazy at celebrations. They were huge at celebrations. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> a lot of people there. But uh, essentially, what it is is we just buy like pizza and sodas, and everybody gets to come hang out, bring their toys, buy, sell, and trade, and stuff like that. But now somebody has a toy store. They have a toy store, so now we're buying all sorts of. Kinds what of what are the all sorts of kinds of things that you know exist now that I have no idea about anything? 
Oh, uh, last week I learned Micronauts. Micronauts. I don't even know what that's for. Or what <laughs> I, I did not know TV? Micronauts. I don't know. I, yeah, I mean, I learned the toys last week just because we got a big collection in. Yeah, yeah, I'll tell you something I learned since you got IC toys. I learned that Transformers have more pieces than a 10,000-piece puzzle. <laughs> <laughs> they have all different pieces and parts. G.I. Joe, too. G.I. Joe has, has a ridiculous of amount of accessories. Yep. Yeah. When you make I, them... I learned some last week and or two weeks ago, and now I'm back at it again because we got a bunch more in. Yeah, we got a ton more GI Joe. We got a ton more Star Wars recently too. But I know Star Wars cold, so that's that's easy peasy. I just go through it. And I'm like that guy. I know that guy. I know. But uh, <laughs> it's really exciting to be back in the the circuit. I'm really happy that people are starting to get back together and uh, connect. Yes. It's uh, it's beautiful. It's something that was severely missed, and people need that interaction. It's just, uh, I don't know what makes us fans. It would be pointless yeah. to collect if you couldn't tell anybody what you collect. Right, absolutely. I mean, talking about it and talking with your friends about what you have and what you just got and what you're looking for, I mean, that's the best part about it. Because then someone messages you and go, hey, it's over here at this table. <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> that's so wonderful what, uh, you know, with Star Podlog, what they do, it's so wonderful because during this time when everybody's stuck at home, it's pretty much the only way to connect with your friends. It is. You know, you, you listen to a podcast or you hear about Steve Sansweet or something like that, and it's wonderful. It's so important what these guys have done, but uh, it'll it'll never be... A perfect replacement for uh, human interaction. I had such a good time last. When did we go? Saturday. Saturday. I had such a good time Saturday, and uh, hung out with a bunch of IC members, and it was just a really, really nice. Yeah, time. we just sat down and talked toys. It, it was yeah. great. Yeah. So ate some pizza. Yeah, we did eat some pizza. pizza. Lots of pizza. <laughs> <laughs> but um, this this Sansweet article, it's uh, very much about collecting. And if you are a new collector, you're just starting out collecting, whether it's Star Wars or whatever, you just have to remember that only two figures or two items, more than one item on a shelf, makes you a collector of that item. As long as those items are real, make sure to stay away from reproductions. If you don't know about reproductions, i got to throw it in here. There's uh, bad people that counterfeit things in this world. Pretty much anything of value, somebody will counterfeit. Um, the same holds true for vintage toys. Uh, so be careful out there. If you don't know what repro is or want to learn about repro and no repro and want to get on the no repro boat and only collect real collectibles, then feel free to join the Imperial Commissary. Um, you know what? If you're just getting into Star Wars toys, we have a wonderful group that is uh, very, very... Um, it's it's for just beginners and also for some really, really well-versed collectors that help out those beginners. But if you don't know at all what you're doing and you want to get into Star Wars or you just pulled your childhood collection out of the attic and you want to either know what it's worth or know how to price it or know how to clean it or know how to make it nice or know how to just complete your set and have all 92 um, if that's what you want to do, join up. It's Imperial Commissary. It's IC Star Wars 101. Uh, the way you find it, you just go to Facebook and you can search ICSW 101 or you can do Facebook.com forward slash groups ICSW 101. It's completely free. There's no buying, selling, and trading on it. And uh, it's just wonderful because more people in this hobby mean more friends for us. Yeah, it's just this page is just for information. It, there's... No buying or selling, like Mike said, and you just 
talk on that page, which is good. And you can learn things and you can share your knowledge of things because no one knows everything. Everyone knows a little bit about something. Yep, and if we can all get together and share that knowledge, that's what will uh, grow this hobby. And the reason why you want to grow this hobby is uh, you want more people to talk to. Shoot, we're we're kind of on the younger spectrum of the uh, vintage Star Wars collecting community. Um, we never, you know, we're 1980s babies, so we never really got... Uh, Star Wars in stores. We were never able to buy vintage Star Wars toys in stores. So we missed out on that part. But that also means that we're going to need people to talk to about Star Wars toys when we're 70 years yes. old, too. Um, so that's why you need new people collecting, and that's why you need new people in the hobby. And the only way to get new people in the hobby, because the thing is, vintage collecting of anything, any toy line, Star Wars, robot toys, tin toys, uh, G.I. Joe, M.O.T.U., Ninja Turtles, whatever it is, is very, very difficult to get into. And the reason why is because it's daunting. It's There's so much information, so much knowledge, and you don't want to ever look like a fool. And uh, the danger of the Internet is it's usually not kind. <laughs> So sometimes, if you're asking a question that you don't know, and it's a simple question, for example, on that Star Wars 101 page I saw a week ago, did you see the the question about star cases? What's a star I didn't. case? No. Yeah. Just what's a star case? And most of us know, but some of us don't, and some people are new. And there were seven comments, and they were all very, very kind, and it was uh, there to protect vintage figures on card, and it's a plastic yeah. case, so you can ship them, and so you can store them, and they have a tack hole, so you can put them on the wall. It was really, really nice, and that's just basic information. And that person has been very, very active on that page now. And that's because they asked a question that many people would find too simple and therefore pick on them, you know, anywhere yeah. else on the Internet. And now that person is part of the community. Yeah. No, that's great. It, it's very important to still be able to make friends at our age. And it's very difficult to, you know, and I think Star Wars brings us all together. And, and too, I make friends every day now. It's, it's crazy. Yeah. And I'll tell you, the reason for that community and the reason why it is there and stuff like that, I mean, there's many different wonderful people that have helped grow it. But people like Steve Sansweet were on the ground floor. I mean, they started this collecting thing. They were the ones that took all the heat through the shoot 70s 80s 90s 2000s i mean when did it become cool to be a nerd i think it's very recent because yeah, i don't I remember don't it being it cool wasn't when, when, I was when in we were school. young yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh that's what i'm saying so you know custodians and stewards of the hobby like that are the ones that have made this hobby what it is and what we can build on and that's what's so wonderful about it i mean i i have great experiences every day i meet new people every day the the big tagline for the imperial commissary has always been uh learn teach and grow the hobby and the reason why is because everybody can learn something from somebody else everybody can teach something to somebody else and those two things are automatically going to grow the hobby. So it's really, uh, really, really wonderful what it has become. We will see you soon at the next ICCCon or any future event. Come on by and have a great time. We will be... Uh... At the store, always. Oh, yeah, always at the store. She's got a <laughs> store now. I won't always be at the store. She'll always be at the store. There, go tell them where to go to the store. Yes, uh, the store, IC Toys, is at 526 East Irish Drive, Nashville. 
Nice. Maybe we'll get a StarPod log live from there one day. What do you think? All right, guys. Thank you so much. We will see you soon. All right. We'd like to end our episodes with looking at an ad or a classified. This ad that we're going to consider is entitled The Fabulous Hollywood Muscle Men. Now, I didn't read Starlog magazine until around 1982, so I didn't know about this magazine then. If I saw this ad, though, I would definitely want this. You were reading Starlog way earlier than I was. Yes. Do you remember this ad for a magazine called Hollywood Muscle Men at all? No, I don't remember it. Okay, I was obsessed with the big guys. Lou Ferrigno, Arnold Schwarzenegger, uh, this list Christopher Reeve, and also David Prowse. The cover features David Prowse on it as a bodybuilder. The funny thing is, David, at his peak, had a great physique. I don't really remember them promoting him as a bodybuilder. I don't think they did, but I do remember reading that that he was a bodybuilder. And that's sort of the reason he got the part, because he's a big guy. Totally, he, he did, yeah. And when in Return of the Jedi, when he picked up, picked up the, the emperor, emperor, that really was him picking up. It wasn't use of piano wire oh really because they said uh, i remember at dragon con when he was there presenting he said that they had a hard time putting harnesses on the actor and he said look i'm a bodybuilder i could pick him up i don't need wires <laughs> <laughs> so anyway the ad goes on to say learn how david prowse darth vader puts muscles on christopher reeve superman like what what a strange sentence something doesn't fit right there Learn I think it's how, saying he was the trainer. Learn how David Prowse put muscles on... Oh, oh, I see what you're saying. Yes. I was like, put muscles on him. That's a weird... <laughs> yeah, okay. it's a weird way to say yes. it. Read about the secret bodybuilding diet that can help make you a Superman, too. Hollywood Muscle Men will have a selection of bodybuilders who have gone Hollywood. Arnold Schwarzenegger, Conan, Lou Ferrigno, Hulk, and many more. There's a complete history of muscle men who have played Tarzan from the first, Elmo Lincoln, to the latest, Ron Eli. Last but not least, the male stars who dared to bear their chest, Burt Lancaster, Lee Majors, Chris Christopherson, <laughs> Ronald Conrad, and more. Like, why is Chris Christopherson in this? I think, well, well because he, like, he was shirtless in a movie, but not, not that he was like a bodybuilder. Yeah, that, I was like. That's what they're, yeah, that's what's weird, but they're saying these. I was, like, you yeah. would like something like this. <laughs> Me as a guy, I was like, I don't want these normal guys. I want these superpower guys. But you're saying you, did you want to actually, um, b- become a bodybuilder? In my dreams. I'm too lazy. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> There's no way I would have dedication to do that. But when I was a kid, oh my God. Now this is, here's another curiosity about this. 1979 magazine and their listing. Arnold Schwarzenegger is Conan. So it was 1982 is when Conan came out. So I, I didn't read any press releases as of yet in Starlog about Conan. Now you got to remember, Starlog was just dipping its toe into fantasy and action at this point. It's going to take a couple years where it just goes full-fledged into all of geekdom. But, but in this ad, for a muscle magazine, it already mentions it. Yes. So he must have already gotten the part. It just took a while to make the movie. Yeah. So this magazine, I would have loved to have had it. The, the muscle magazine. Please send me Hollywood Muscle Men at $2.25 for postage and handling. Yeah, I would have asked my mom for a check. 
and I would have yeah. wanted it. <laughs> I, I might not have gotten it, but I would have wanted it. Thanks for listening. Make sure you hit that subscribe button and join our Facebook group. Live long and may the force be with you. Nanu Nanu. Thank you.